you are here in the room or you're joining us online, I'm really, really glad that you're here. My name is Josh Miller. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you've been around for a while, um, you've probably heard me say that we have both a church vision and a city vision. And what we mean by that is that we have a vision for our church, for the health and the growth of our church, for helping you grow in Christ and being strengthened in the grace of God. We also have a vision for serving, blessing, and reaching our city, okay? We also want to be a church that's for our city, that brings the good news of the gospel to our city. And this week is the four-year anniversary of the Unite the Right rally that occurred back on August 12, 2017, uh, that just caused an enormous amount of pain in our community, resulted in the death of multiple people. And so what I want to do as we start off today is I just want to pray for our community uh, as we come up upon the anniversary of, uh, man, this really tragic event. But before we do that, I also want to share with you an opportunity to not just pray for our community, but to also serve our community. So over the last year, we've developed a partnership with Greenbrier Elementary School, which is one of our city elementary schools here in town. We've got to provide breakfast for their teachers. Uh, We've gotten to take part in a coat drive for some of their students. And then um, back in June, some of you helped us pull off a huge outdoor renovation project there. So at Serve the City, one of our major projects was at Greenbrier Elementary. Well, this month, we have another opportunity to serve that school by participating in a backpack drive, okay? So if you look down here, we've got a bunch of different backpacks, different colors, even really pretty numbers. You know I didn't organize this because it looks so nice. So we've got all these backpacks down here. We've got kindergarten all the way through fourth or fifth grade. And inside each one of those backpacks is a school supply list, okay? So here's the play call. The church is providing the backpacks, and I'm going to invite you to come claim one, all right? So at the end of the service, you're going to have an opportunity to come up. It can be you. You know, it can be you and a buddy. It can be your family. It, it can be whoever. But I'm going to invite you to come grab a backpack and fill it with those school supplies this week. So look at that sheet and, you know, just get everything that you can off of that sheet for that backpack and then bring them back next Sunday because we're going to take them to Greenbrier and the principal there. And actually one of our members who works there is then going to deliver those backpacks to families who are in need. Okay. So it's a really cool practical way that we just can be a blessing to our community, to some families, many of which are refugees who have relocated to the United States and don't speak English as their primary language. It's just a really neat opportunity for us to be the hands and feet of Christ in our community as we also pray for our community going into man, what for many people is a very challenging week. Okay. So if you just join me in that and also in praying for our community, and then we'll jump into the sermon, okay? Let's pray. Lord, you uh, are a God who comforts us in our affliction. And so, God, I just pray for everyone in our church and in our community who dreads August 12th, who dreads this week because of many uh, memories it brings to mind, of many hurt, uh, hurt, hurting experiences it brings to mind, of much pain that it brings to mind. God, we pray that, that they would feel your presence really in a unique way this week. God, you've called us to be salt and light as a church, and I just ask you to help us to do that. That you give us opportunities to build bridges and to be ambassadors of your good news here. God, help us to weep with those who weep. Help us to bear one another's burdens and just to be good neighbors. God, you call us to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbors ourselves. We want to do that. We know, Lord, that there are some hurts and some pains that only the gospel can heal. And so, Lord, we just pray for opportunities to share that good news and word, to demonstrate it in deed, and to be a light here in our community. So give us grace as we come upon a challenging week, and give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe what you have to say to us from Mark chapter 6. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can take it out. You can type to or turn to Mark chapter 6. We're going to be in verses 45 through 52. Mark chapter 6, 45 through 52. So we've been walking chapter by chapter through the gospel of Mark. This is our 14th week in the gospel of Mark, which is pretty neat. 
Last week, we looked at one of the most famous miracles in the New Testament where Jesus fed the 5,000. Well, this week, we're looking at maybe the second most famous miracle in the New Testament when Jesus walked on the water, okay? So we've got big stuff last week, big stuff this week, right next to each other in chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark. And, And last week really must have been a mountaintop experience for the disciples. I mean, they got to watch their rabbi supernaturally create food, and then they got to carry it to the crowd. They got to be the avenue of God's power in the world. I mean, it must have been a thrilling experience. It must have been one of the greatest moments of their spiritual lives, a shining mountaintop of their progress in following Christ. But today in our text, we find them in a much different situation. Today in our text, we find them miles out at sea in the middle of the night, driven by the wind and without Jesus, right? A a bright, shining mountaintop followed by a deep, dark valley. That was the disciples' experience in chapter 6 of the Gospel of Mark, and maybe that's your experience. Maybe you can relate with that. Some moments you feel like you're following Christ, you're believing the promises of God, you're in his word, you're feeling his presence, and then something happens or someone happens, and all of a sudden you feel like you're in a valley. You don't understand what's going on. You're suffering, you're lonely, you're scared. You feel like Jesus has totally abandoned you. And if you've ever felt like that, then you can relate with how the disciples probably felt in this chapter. But the truth is, this story is not about the disciples. Be really honest, this story is not about you. (laughs) It's not about me. This story is about Jesus. This story is about Jesus and his unique character. But here's why it's really important for us, because this chapter is about how Jesus relates to his people in dark moments. This text is about how Jesus relates to his people in dark moments. So if, if you're worried, anxious, uneasy, or fearful today, If you ever have been in a dark moment, if you will be in a dark moment in the future, or you love someone who will, then this text matters, and I need you to lock in with me. Because we're going to learn two really important things about how Jesus relates to his people in very dark moments by walking through this text. So I'm going to start in verse 45. We're just going to walk through it together and see those things as we go. Verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. So this is immediately after feeding the 5,000. It says that Jesus made his disciples get in the boat. And that word in Greek is a very strong word. It literally means forced them to. Forced them to get in the boat. Jesus gave them no other options. It wasn't a dialogue. He said, get in the boat and leave. Now, why would Jesus do that? Why would Jesus use such a strong command to protect his disciples? To protect them from what? From themselves. (laughs) You see, We're told by John chapter 6 that the crowd became so enthusiastic after Jesus multiplied this food that they tried to forcibly make him their king. You see, the people wanted Jesus to be a freedom fighter. They wanted him to be a politician. They wanted him to set up a government on earth. They wanted him to lead them in revolt against the Romans, and his disciples wanted the same thing. You see that throughout the New Testament. It's why the disciples are constantly saying, Jesus, can I be on your right, and can my brother be on your left in the kingdom? We think they mean kingdom of God. They meant actual kingdom on earth. They're like, hey, can we be the secretary of state? Like that's what they're asking Jesus. These disciples were just as nationalistic as their their peers. They had this desire within them. And so here's what's happening. The crowd is getting worked up. And you've been in environments like that. The crowd's getting worked up. There's this fervor. Let's make Jesus the king. And Jesus sees what's going on. And he's like, I got to get my disciples out of here. Because the disciples were in danger of misunderstanding the identity and mission of Jesus, of what he came to do. You see, Jesus did not come to kill Romans. Jesus came to die for sin. Jesus did not come to kill Romans. He came to die for sin. But the disciples were in danger of misunderstanding that. And so Jesus says, hey, get in the boat and go to Bethsaida. 
The Bible tells us that there are some temptations in life that we should not fight, we should flee. Okay, we should not fight, we should flee. Think about Joseph in uh, the story of Joseph in Genesis where he's in Potiphar's house and Potiphar's wife just keeps trying to sleep with him and finally it just says Joseph went running out of the house without his cloak. He just like ran out of the house. Paul said to the Corinthian church, he said, hey, flee from sexual immorality. Paul said to Timothy, he said, hey, flee youthful passions. What this means is that some of us need to get better at running away. <laughs> All right, can I be really honest with you? Some of you need to flee social media. You need to flee dating apps. You need to flee the bachelor. Okay, like you need to flee that person or group of people because every time you're with them, it leads you to make unwise choices. Right? Sometimes the better part of valor is to run away. Sometimes the best thing you can do is get in the boat and sail to Bethsaida. Okay? Some of us need to learn how to do that. Verse 46. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. That's an important phrase. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. So after dismissing the crowd, Jesus went up on the mountain. It's probably hill country. He went up into the hills to pray, to spend time alone with God. And it's worth noting that Jesus Christ, the son of God, who I'm sure was in constant dialogue with God in prayer, also set aside focus times of prayer. And I would suggest we need to do the same thing. I, I hope that you kind of have this ongoing dialogue with God in the car, in the shower, when things happen during the day. That's good, right? But if, if Jesus needed to have kind of focus, set aside times of prayer, I think we, we do as well. So Jesus is up in the mountain. He's praying. And Mark draws us our attention to something. Do you see how Mark said that the boat was out on the sea, but he was alone on the land? Now, we already knew that, right? We already, he already told us that they got in the boat and sailed away. We knew Jesus was still on the land. So, like, why is Mark doubling down and, like, trying to draw our attention to it? He wants us to see what the problem is. You see, he sees, says that the boat was out on the sea. And we aren't, you know, Galilean fishermen, so we don't understand the impact of that. But you did not go out on the sea unless you had to. Because the water out in the middle of the Sea of Galilee is very dangerous, very strong currents, winds come out of nowhere, storms come down on that sea very viciously. And so unless you were fishing way out in the deep water, you would just stay along the shore. That is what the disciples intended to do. They intended to just travel along the shore to Bethsaida, kind of a nice relaxing, relaxing sail up the coast, but something had gone wrong. You see, it seems that their boat was driven out into the middle of the sea, into the dangerous part of the sea by wind and currents. And if you've ever, I mean, if you've ever been to the ocean, you know how this works, right? Like you're out jumping in the waves, all of a sudden you look up and you're like half a mile down the beach, right? Lifeguards won't even let you go in the water if there's a riptide. That's how dangerous the sea is. Well, that is what happened to the disciples. They intended to sail down the shore in the safe, shallow waters, but they got dragged out to sea. The Gospel of Matthew, in a parallel account, says the boat was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves and the wind was against them. John's account says they were three or four miles out at sea. The sea was rough and a strong wind was blowing. So they had anticipated a gentle, peaceful, you know, trip up the coast to Bethsaida. And instead they found themselves in a very, very dark moment. And don't forget the whole reason they were there. Because Jesus made them get in the boat. Their obedience to Jesus had landed them in a very dark water. In very dark time. Very, very stormy season. You see, sometimes obedience to Jesus will lead you into a dark moment too. Sometimes obedience to Jesus won't deliver you from hard things. It'll deliver you into hard things. Maybe you take an ethical stand at work and now you're ostracized. Maybe you've been labeled hateful because you affirm God's design for gender and sexuality. Maybe you've lost friendships because of your obedience to Jesus. Maybe you have strained relationships in your family because of your 
faith. The truth is sometimes obedience to Jesus will lead you into a dark moment. And if you can relate with that, if obedience to Jesus has ever led you into a hard moment, or you think it will in the future, then I need you to see verse 48. And he saw. And he saw. That's the first big idea from this text. Number one, in your dark moments, Jesus sees you. In your dark moments, Jesus sees you. Jesus saw his disciples from miles away. How is that possible? Because of Jesus' divine nature. Because of his omniscience. Because Jesus is not just another rabbi. Jesus is fully God and fully man. This actually isn't the only instance that Jesus revealed his divine ability to see. In John chapter 1, there's this great interaction where Nathaniel is coming up to meet Jesus. They've never met before. And Jesus says, behold, an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. And Nathaniel says, how do you know me, Lord? We've never met. And Jesus says, Nathaniel, I saw you when you were sitting under the fig tree before Philip came and called you. And Nathaniel says, my Lord and my God, you know. Right? Jesus has the ability to see his people at all times. Right? Jesus is God. God always sees his people. We see this illustrated all throughout the scriptures. In Exodus chapter 2, the Israelites have been enslaved in Egypt and they're being subjected to cruel labor. And they cry out to God. And this is what the text says. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. And God knew. In Psalm 139, David wrote this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern even my thoughts from afar. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret. Intricately woven in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw even my unformed substance. God always sees his people, which means if you are in Christ... There is never a moment in your life that Jesus does not see you and know exactly what you're going through. It doesn't matter if everyone else has abandoned you. If like King David in Psalm 27, it feels like even my mother and father have forsaken me, but you, Lord, shall hold me fast. Whatever you're going through right now, Jesus sees and Jesus knows, even if no one else does. And that is a radically different teaching than what our world teaches. Do you know what our culture teaches? Our culture teaches that there is no God. We're just here as a you know, survival of the fittest. That you're here today because your ancestors killed everyone that was weaker than them. That the universe is a cold, dangerous place that is driven forth by bloodshed. That one day the sun will burn out, everything will die, and you and everyone you've ever cared about will be forgotten. That is the inevitable conclusion of an atheistic worldview. You live in an utterly lonely and cold universe. In your dark moments, you are truly alone. Now, many people in our society don't want to go that far, right? So there's a, a huge rise in what's called agnosticism. You, you might identify with this here tonight. Agnosticism says, I think that there's something out there. I think that maybe there's a spirit or there's a life force, or there's karma, or there's something that kind of got the world going, but you can't know that thing. You can't have a relationship with that thing. It would be arrogant to presume that I know anything about that. And I would say that's a little bit better than atheism, but the end result is about the same. Because can I be honest with you? Karma doesn't empathize with you when you miscarry. The eternal life force won't comfort you when you're mistreated, misunderstood, or abandoned. The inevitable conclusion of both athe atheism and agnosticism is that you are utterly alone in your darkest moments, that no one really sees and that no one really knows, and that gnawing feeling of loneliness is reality. 
That's what our culture believes. So what has that produced, you ask? Ideas always have consequences. So what have those ideas produced? Well, it's, it's no surprise, crushing loneliness. Cigna and the Kaiser Family Foundation have been studying the development of loneliness in American society. They found some really troubling trends. So they found that if you go all the way back to the baby boomers, every generation, baby boomers, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z, has gotten progressively lonelier. Gen Z is the loneliest generation that has ever existed. 35%, more than a third of Gen Z, say they are lonely all the time. Not, not one day a week, not two days a week. Every single moment of their life, they feel lonely. Doctors say that that level of loneliness has the same impact on your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Think about that. The result of atheism and agnosticism in our culture is crushing, crippling loneliness. Some of you have felt that. Some of you are in church today. You're exploring Christianity because you're thinking, maybe this is where I can find community. Maybe that deep need for belonging that I feel in my soul can be satisfied through this church. Friends, the Bible says something so wonderfully different than our culture says. The Bible says you're not an accident. You're not here by mistake. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. The creator of the universe knit you together in your mother's womb. He sent Christ to die for your sins so that no matter what you've done, you're not hopeless. Through repentance and faith, you can be forgiven. You can be redeemed. You can be brought into the family of God. If you are in Christ, then the Holy Spirit dwells within you. You're no longer an orphan of the world. You're a son or daughter of the king. And the spirit of God is in you, ministering to you, comforting you, seeing you, and knowing you no matter what you go through. Let me ask you, how would it change how you face your trials this week if you really felt that? How would it change how you think about life, how you think about the future? If you knew no matter what happens, the creator of the universe sees me and knows me. Friends, that's true of you if you're in Christ. That is true of you if you are in Christ. It makes me think of a story of a great Russian evangelist who grew up very, very poor in Russia and his parents, man, saved all the money they could have and they put him on a boat and they sent him to the United States to start a new life, just him. And he couldn't read, he didn't, he, you know, he didn't have any education and so he's on the boat and he has no food. And so he almost starves to death on this boat and then finally one of the sailors finds him and says, hey, if you'll help me, I'll give you a little bit of food. So he's helping the sailor, he's eating gruel and little pieces of bread. And on the last day of the cruise, one of the sailors says, let me see your ticket. And he reads the ticket and in the purchase of the ticket, his parents had bought him three meals a day in the restaurant. See, he had this provided for him, he just wasn't experiencing the blessing of it. I wonder how many of us that's true. God sees us, God knows us, God is with us, and yet we don't always realize that. We don't always live like that's true, but how would it change us if we did? And that's the powerful truth of this text. Jesus sees you in your darkest moment, just like he saw his disciples. Let's keep reading, verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them, and about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea, he meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out. For they all saw him and were terrified. So it says the disciples were making headway painfully, which literally means they were straining at the oars. And it says it was the fourth watch of the night, which is between 3 and 6 a.m. So that means they have been straining at the oars for eight hours and they're going the wrong direction. They're not closer to shore. They are three miles out in the middle of a storm in the dangerous waters of the seas of Galilee. They're doing everything that they can. They're making no progress. They felt utterly and totally helpless and out of control. 
And then it says that they look, and here comes Jesus walking on the sea. And I mean, the Greek literally says walking on the sea. It doesn't say waiting on the sea. It doesn't say swimming on the sea. It says walking on the sea. Now, in the ancient world, the sea symbolized chaos, uncontrollable power and fury. Not even the strongest king was so arrogant to think that he could control the seas. And it's still that way today, right? We don't control a hurricane. We don't control a tsunami. We avoid them, right? We flee from them. No one controls the power of the sea. Scientists say that it's easier to explore outer space than it is to explore the depths of the oceans. That is how huge they are. That is how overwhelmingly strong they are. You cannot control the waters. And yet here comes Jesus just strolling on top of them, right? The point that Mark is making is that this is no mere man. This is not like a better version of Rabbi Josiah. Like, this is a whole different category. Jesus has now graduated into a different class. He's walking on the surface of the seas. Who could do that? Well, we all know that no man could do that. But throughout the Old Testament, we're told that God can do that. God is the only one who has authority over the seas in the Old Testament. In Genesis chapter 6, God calls forth the seas to judge the earth. And then he tells them to go away and they go back into their place. In Exodus chapter 14, God drove back the Red Sea with a command so that the Israelites could cross on dry ground. In Joshua chapter 3, God cut off the surging waters of the Jordan River in flood season so that his people could cross into the promised land. And I love Job chapter 9 verse 8. Job asked this, who can contend with God? He who shakes the earth commands the sun, and trampled the waves of the sea. God alone has authority over the waters, and here is Jesus exercising authority over the waters. The point that Mark is making is this is God. Jesus, fully God, fully man, has come to dwell with us. Who is this man? Now, over the years, people have offered lots of different naturalistic explanations for this miracle. Um, some folks have said, Jesus wasn't walking on the water. He was walking on the shoreline and the disciples, you know, thought he was on the water. And so that's what happened. Um, other people said Jesus was waiting. So it was very shallow. So he was waiting on the sea. And then he just sort of like stepped into the boat. Uh, so that's what happened. And then this is my personal favorite. Others said that Jesus discovered a sandbar and it was a three mile sandbar. And it started and just went directly out and somehow managed to go exactly where the boat was. And then he like steps off the sandbar into the boat. You know, that's what happened. Um, I just, I don't find any of these to be a very convincing. I mean, number one, you know, these were seasoned fishermen. They know the difference between somebody walking on the water and somebody on the shoreline. And John tells us they were three miles away, right? So you're like, if you think somebody's walking on the water, you're going to check first, right? To be like, unless maybe they're just walking on the shore, right? So I don't think that's very convincing. Um, if Jesus was just wading in shallow water, then the whole story breaks down. Because if it's shallow water, how is the boat's not in trouble because it's in shallow water. And the boat could, I mean, it's like a big boat. It's like 14 people could fit in it. It couldn't float in shallow water. And then the sandbar is just, it's just ridiculous, right? There, you just couldn't find, it's almost more miraculous to think that happened than Jesus actually walked on the water. So I don't find any of those, uh, I don't find any of those convincing. Um, I will concede that the idea of a man walking on the surface of the water is very hard to fathom, right? I've, I mean, I have a very hard time understanding how that could happen or what that would look like. Like I have a hard time conceiving of that, but it's important that we realize there's a difference between something that we can't understand and something being unreasonable. Let me try to explain this. You, just because you can't understand it doesn't mean it's unreasonable. So if you believe that there's a God who created the world and who created natural law, then it's entirely reasonable to believe that the God who created natural law could 
supersede natural law or suspend natural law if it is purposes. That's Mark's entire point. The only way that Jesus could do this is if he's God, right? That is what Christians believe, that there is a God who created. He created these laws of nature. Usually he doesn't supersede them, but every once in a while he does because he's God. Nobody else can do that, but he can. Now, the text says that Jesus meant to pass by them. It's kind of an interesting phrase, isn't it? Was he going somewhere else? Right? Like, oh, hey, guys, didn't see you out here. You know, like, like, what's that mean? No, it's like, I mean, Jesus was obviously purposefully walking to his disciples. He saw them. He walked all the way there. So what, what are we supposed to make of this phrase? Well, a couple things. Um, three or four times in the Old Testament, this phrase, passed by him or passed by them, is used to describe when God allows his presence to be felt by one of his people in a very special way. So in Exodus 33, Moses says, God, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory and live. If you see my glory, you'll die. But what I'll do is I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock and I'll cause my glory to pass by you. And you'll be able to feel and experience my glory in a unique way. And just having the glory of God pass by Moses was so incredible that his face shined. And when he went down off the mountain, the Israelites were terrified of him. And they're like, put a veil over your face. We can't look at your face. In 1 Kings 19, we have the story of the prophet Elijah who was so depressed that he wanted to die. He was discouraged in his ministry. He felt like God had abandoned him. And then it says that God passed by him. God passed by him and Elijah felt the presence of God in his life and it encouraged him and it rejuvenated him. So when you think about the phrase, Jesus went to pass by them, what this is drawing to mind is God coming to dwell with his people in hard moments. God coming to dwell with his people when they are on the brink of something challenging when they're going through some season of grief or loss or hardship, and God in a special way makes his presence felt in your life. Another way that you could translate this phrase that I think gets at the meaning a little bit better is this, Jesus desired to come alongside them. Jesus desired to come alongside them in their dark moment. That's our second big idea. In your dark moments, Jesus comes alongside you. In your dark moments, Jesus comes alongside you. Jesus saw his disciples hurting, scared, out of control, lonely, feeling abandoned, and so he came. God comes alongside his people in dark times. There are numerous examples of this throughout the scriptures. I'll give you one, Daniel chapter three. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Man, three young men trying to live faithful lives in the midst of a pagan culture. And because they refuse to bow down to the idols of their culture, man, they are, they are ostracized, they are cast out, and finally the king of Babylon casts them into a fiery furnace. He says, I'll show you what happens to people who won't bow down to my cultural idols. I'll show you what happens when you won't get in line and affirm what I affirm. I'm throwing you into my furnace. But then the king of Babylon looked into the furnace, and this is what it says. Did we not cast three men bound into the fire? But I see four men unbound, walking in the midst of the fire. And the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. What happened? God came alongside his people in their trial. One like a son of the gods came and stood with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I could give you a lot of other illustrations from the scriptures, but I think the most powerful one is the incarnation. The incarnation. God, the Son in heaven, looked at his people in darkness. He looked at us in our grief and our suffering and our pain. He looked at us in our helplessness, and he took on flesh to come and dwell with us. He took on flesh to walk with you in your darkness. Friends, Christianity is the only religion in the world that says God did not remain distant from suffering. He did not remain separate from grief and from loss. He did not remain up in heaven, but he took on flesh and he experienced the veil of tears that our life often is. 
Jesus knows what it feels like to lose a father. Jesus knows what it feels like to be betrayed by a close friend. Jesus knows what it feels like to be misunderstood, to be marginalized, to be ostracized, to be impoverished. Jesus knows what it feels like to suffer. Whatever you have experienced, Jesus understands because he has experienced it as well. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus is a high priest who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses because he himself has also been tempted in every single way, yet without sin. The incarnation is the greatest example of Jesus coming alongside his people in their darkness. And if you've ever walked through a really dark season, you maybe can testify to this. I've talked to saints who have walked through incredibly tragic things. And they've said, Josh, this is the hardest season of my life. But in the midst of it, I have never felt God's presence more closely. You see, there's a sense that sometimes when you walk through grief and pain, Jesus will manifest his presence to you in a very unique way. And the promises of God will feel not just like the promises of God generally, but to you. And the goodness of God and the empathy of God will feel like the goodness and empathy of God to you. You see, sometimes Jesus will manifest his presence to you in in these extremely difficult, dark situations, and praise the Lord for that. But I'll tell you that the normative way that Jesus makes his presence known in your life is through the local church. You see, the Bible say that the local church is Christ's body, that we are the body, that Christ is the head, and you and I are members of the body. Well, in Mark chapter 6, Jesus could physically go and be with the disciples, He physically went and was with them. Well, right now, Jesus is physically at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. So he's not physically with us, but what he's given us is the local church. You see, when Jesus wants to come alongside you today in your darkness, he does it through his people. He does it through the church. He does it by someone being a shoulder to cry on, by someone texting you and saying, hey, I'm praying about you, and I'm praying for you, and I'm thinking about you. It's somebody just showing up with a meal. It's someone listening to you. It's someone giving you a ride to the airport. It's someone suffering with you when your husband walks out. And it's the local church weeping with one another, rejoicing with one another, bearing one another's burdens, being the body of Christ to one another. And that is the way primarily that Jesus manifests his care in your life. So let me ask you a question. If Jesus wanted to manifest his care to you today through the local church, would he be able to? Would he be able to? Are you connected enough to the church that Jesus could care for you? Are you Involved in a missional community here? Are you on a serving team? Have you come to the weekender? Have you become a member? Have you connected yourself to the body of Christ so that the body of Christ can care for you? If you haven't connected yourself to the body of Christ, you've divorced yourself from the main way that Jesus cares for you. Jesus wants to manifest his care for you in dark moments, and the way he does it is through the church, which is why we want to help you get connected here. Or if not here, somewhere else. We want you to be connected to the local church. Sometimes people will ask me, how connected should I be to the church? And what I always think is, I don't know, how much do you want to feel Jesus' presence? You know, it's like up to you, I guess. Like, the question isn't like, how connected should I be, but how can I be more connected? How, how, how can I, you know, how can I rearrange other things so I can feel Jesus' presence more? We want to help you get connected here because we want you to feel the presence of Christ, especially in your dark moments. In your dark moments, Jesus comes alongside of you. Let's keep reading. Verse 49. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. 
So when the disciples saw Jesus walking on the water, they were terrified. The word literally means beside themselves with fear. And like, we would have been too, because here's your two options. Either rabbis walking on water, or that's a ghost, right? Like, I guess I'm going with ghost. And so they're, they're terrified, they're overwhelmed, they're exhausted. They're in the middle of this dark, stormy sea. And then Jesus comes to them, and he gives them a command. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. If there was ever a moment that we needed to hear that command, I think it's this moment. Because our society is beset with fear. I mean, just a spirit of fear. And some of you are beset with a spirit of fear. I'm not talking about reasonable emotional fear, like there's a bear in my yard, okay? I'm talking about a spirit of fear that permeates your entire being and fills you with constant worry and anxiety and and a picture of the future that is the worst case scenario all the time. And do you know how a spirit of fear is strengthened in your life? By cable news networks and by social media. Because fear sells. Fear brings you back. Fear gets more clicks. And so our culture is just feeding fear all the time and it's having devastating uh, mental health effects. I mean, absolutely devastating effects. But if you're a Christian, you are called not to fear. The Apostle Paul said to Timothy, you have not been given a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power and of love and of self-control. That's the spirit that you've been given. Jesus comes into this circumstance. He sees his disciples terrified. And he says, stop being afraid. Do not fear. A spirit of fear is not what God has for you. And I know that because the most common command in scripture is do not fear. Over 300 times, God commands his people, do not fear. And most of the time when he says that, it's connected to a promise. Do not fear, I am with you. Do not fear, disciples, it is I. Do not fear, I am with you. Isaiah 41.10, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Isaiah chapter 43, thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. If you are in Christ, you do not have to be afraid. If you are in Christ, the Holy Spirit of God, hear me, is dwelling in you. You can choose courage because God is with you. Do you know what Jesus literally said in the Greek? Do not fear, ego a me. Which means, do not fear, I am. Does that ring any bells? I am is the holy name of God. At the burning bush, when Moses said, what if the people don't listen to me? God said, you tell them that I am sent you. That I am sent you and that I am is going to deliver his people out of Egypt and that I am is going to glorify himself against Pharaoh and that I am is going to split the Red Sea and that I am is going to bring you through the wilderness and that I am is going to establish you in the promised land. You tell the people that I am is with them so they shall not be afraid. Jesus said to his disciples, do not fear, I am. 
You don't have to be afraid, guys. God just got in the boat. Hear me. If I am is in your life, you don't have to be afraid. If I am is in your life, you don't have to be afraid. No matter what you face, no matter what darkness you are looking at. Because if you are in Christ, here's the reality for you. Christ has already experienced the greatest darkness so that you will never have to. Christ has already experienced the greatest darkness so that you don't have to. You see, the remarkable thing about this story is how this gospel ends. Keep in mind who we're talking about. The man walking on the sea, the man multiplying loaves. This is how his story ends in Mark. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha and they crucified him and divided his garments among them. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. The same Jesus who walked on the waves hung on the cross. The same Jesus who walked on the waves, who has that kind of authority, hung on a Roman cross for you. That cross didn't have his name on it. It had my name on it and your name on it. He hung on that cross to pay for our sins. Do you know why the land was dark for three hours while Jesus hung there? Because in that time, Jesus was enduring the darkness of hell so that you could enjoy the brightness of heaven. Friends, if you are in Christ, here's the reality. This life is as dark as it's ever going to get. And you are headed to an eternity of light where we won't need the sun for the glory of God will be our brightness. But if you are not in Christ today, this world is as light as it's ever going to get. And you are headed to an eternity of soul-crushing darkness, completely devoid from the light, completely devoid from the presence and goodness of God. But you don't have to be. Jesus endured that darkness for you. The one who walks on the waves hung on your cross so that you could be saved. What manner of love is this? That we should be called children of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever believed in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever. Doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how long it's been. If you repent and trust in Christ, you will be saved. You will no longer be headed to eternal darkness and condemnation. You will be headed to eternal light and commendation, to an inheritance stored up for you, to thousands upon thousands of angels in festal gathering, praising the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. The dividing line of eternity is the man, Jesus Christ, is the man who walked on the waves and hung on a cross for you. So let me ask you, what have you done with Jesus Christ? Have you responded in repentance and faith? Not asking, do you know about Jesus? I'm not asking, did you grow up in church? I'm not asking, are you generally religious or conservative? Have you personally repented of your sin and trusted in Christ? Because the scriptures say that the only confidence that we can have of heaven is that. It's not our moral record. It's not our religious record. It's not our church attendance. It's not our voting patterns. It is the finished work of Christ. And so I would be remiss if I didn't very clearly explain to you 
how you can be saved. It starts by confessing to the Lord that you are a sinner. God, I'm not a mistaker. I'm a sinner. I don't need a life coach. I need a savior. I'm turning from my sin. I'm turning back to you. You confess to God. You believe that Christ has done everything necessary for your salvation. It's not Jesus plus your good efforts gets you into heaven. It's only Jesus, all Jesus. None of your efforts can accomplish anything. You believe, God, I believe that Christ has done everything necessary for my salvation. And you commit to follow him as Lord. You said, Jesus, you're in charge of my life now. You are my savior and Lord. Even when what you say is different than what culture says or what my family says or what my heart says, I'm trusting you. Because you're the one who walks on the waves. You're the one who multiplies the bread. You're the one who gives sight to the blind. You're the one who raises the dead little girl. And you're the one who being able to do all that hung on a cross for me. So I'm trusting you. I invite you to bow your heads with me. And I just want to ask if you've ever done that. Light and darkness, heaven and hell hang in the balance of what you do with Jesus Christ. So if you need to do that today, I, wanna, I just want to tell you how. You just pray to God. God, I confess I'm a sinner. I believe Christ has done everything necessary to save me. And I commit to follow him as Lord. If you need to do that, I just want to give you time right now. Pray to God. If that's you today, I want to ask you to take that connect card, fill it out, let us know so that we can help you follow Christ. If you have more questions, let us know so that we can help you follow Christ. Lord Jesus, I just thank you that you who could walk on the waves and multiply the bread so hung on a cross for a sinner like me. Thank you for what that means about how much I matter to you. Thank you for what that means about the hope that I have and we have in life. Would you help us to walk faithfully in light of that truth? We love you. I pray all this in your name. Amen. Well, when you're ready, I just want to invite you to stand and worship.